Thanks for listening in to this week's episode. If you haven't checked out my website lately, go ahead and take a look. I've added some of my favorite products to the website, and they might become some of your favorite products. My guest on this week's episode is Kirby Lewis. He was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at the age of 52. Kirby had a recurrence in 2016, at which time the cancer had metastasized to his lung. He shared how he found the breast cancer, his course of treatment, and how he feels like, ultimately, breast cancer saved his life. Kirby talks about his life's mantra and how he continues to live that mantra despite a diagnosis of cancer. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Kirby. It's so nice to have you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning of your story. How did you find out that you had breast cancer um, or a lump or, you know, just tell me the beginning of, of where this all started for you? Sure. It was the weirdest thing, really. Um, I had been um, fighting a cold and a cough, a very persistent cough, um, for about six weeks. And um, it was just continually getting worse. And I, my congestion at night especially was, was bad. And uh, I actually kind of thought that maybe it was uh, allergy-related because it was uh, early springtime. Um, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's uh, allergy-related. So anyway, at night, uh, my wife and I laid down in bed. And about 11.30 that night, I, I sat up coughing and heaving and uh, just trying to get, you know, my breath. And when I did, I grabbed my chest. And uh, with my right hand and, and on my left side, I, I noticed a, a lump. And so it was purely by accident, um, but uh, almost immediately, uh, and for some crazy reason, I, I have no, uh, I don't have any basis to have this as a, I mean, there's nothing that I could say that would rationalize me thinking this, but for some reason I knew it was breast cancer. I have no family history. Um, so, I mean, it was just like, I, I just knew, and I, I woke my wife up and, uh, if you've ever heard, um, the old, uh, saying that don't poke the bear, it is very true. Um, so, and I, I use a little bit of humor, I, I use a little, yeah, I know, but I use a little bit of humor here because Melissa, let me tell you something. We've been married 33 years and trust me, you don't get through a, a marriage with, Everything that you have, uh, raising a, a son and and just life, you know, you don't get through all of that without injecting some humor. So I, I agree. I woke her up. Yeah, yeah. And I woke her up and I said, honey, I, I found a lump in my breast. I think I have breast cancer. And she says, oh, for goodness sakes, go back to sleep. You have breast cancer and I have prostate cancer. Good night. Oh, my she, <laughs> so, she was definitely a bear that day. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, fortunately, um, she did not have uh, prostate cancer. I'm glad. That would have been a whole other conversation <laughs> that we would be having. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately for me, um, after uh, several weeks of tests and, uh, uh, you know, the, you go through the sonograms and the x-rays and then I had a needle biopsy and then I had an open biopsy. And after all of those, it was finally determined um, that, in fact, I did have uh, have breast cancer. So and, I have uh, two thoughts. Um, one is actually a question, but um, I mean, I find it very fascinating that you, one, just immediately went to breast cancer, considering that there's not a family history. Um, and I think that also lends itself to a little bit of surprise from my end, um, just because many of the men that I have spoken to, there has consistently been a family history. 
you know, so many times it goes back to like a BRCA mutation or, you know, the PAPI2 or like whatever genetic mutation. So to hear that, you know, there's not a family history from your end is just, you know, kind of surprising. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the other thing that I want to try to get out there is, you know, first of all, I want people to understand that men do get breast cancer and also that it doesn't have to be related to a family history. No, it does not. Um, and, and that's the really, uh, one of the more important, um, facets about breast cancer in general. Um, there, you know, it doesn't male or female, it does not have to be connected with, uh, uh, with genes, uh, genealogy or genetics or anything like that. It has, um, for me, I believe uh, that it was environmental exposure. I was in the military in the United States Navy, and um, as many people know, we are exposed to all kinds of chemicals and um, just so many different things um, from the water we drink uh, that is being treated at sea um, to uh, just uh, the chemicals and the, uh, the different types of asbestos and things like that that are in uh, shipyards when you're in dry dock. So I, I just kind of feel as though that that is probably where mine uh, you know, stems from. Right. Well, and you bring something up. Um, I hadn't thought about it for a little bit of time, but I do believe that there is a very large population of men who have been diagnosed with breast cancer that were stationed at, I want to say it was like Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, Camp Camp Lejeune. Camp and, Lejeune. Yes. And, yeah, Camp Lejeune in uh, North Carolina. And then now more recently, of course, we're seeing uh, a large uh, pocket uh, uh, or a group of uh, the first responders from 9-11. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the, the odd thing about that is, and, and this is the thing that I, I don't really, I, I don't know how to connect the dots because I'm not a, 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 a researcher. Uh, I'm not a PhD, so I don't understand all the chemical aspects and things like that. But you think about um, the first responders, and they're breathing in again all of these fumes, these toxins, uh, toxins, and these uh, just these fumes from the uh, from what they experienced at 9/11. And now they are seeing a, a, a large a volume of breast cancer. Yes. Uh, you know, so it's kind of crazy. You don't. You would think I would associate. Uh, breathing in these toxins is more probably that that would uh, materialize as uh, lung cancer, uh, something related to that. But obviously, the toxins affect people differently, and uh, at least there's uh, a large number of those that uh, it is bringing uh, breast cancer to you know to them, and that's unfortunate, of course. But uh, yeah, absolutely. So when you went to your doctor and you indicated that you found this lump. Was your doctor, like, I'm just kind of curious, right? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's I, a very small population a, of men who are diagnosed with breast cancer. So I think there's a, probably a tendency to be like, no, that's not what it is. Yeah, I, I laugh because, <laughs> because Melissa, I went in there and I was, like I said, I was pretty adamant that that's what it was. I, for some reason, I don't know. I just was confident that that's, you know, I've got breast cancer. And uh, I went in, and this doctor was with the uh, Veterans Administration. Now, the VA gets a bad rap on a lot of things, and I get excellent treatment and excellent care uh, normally with the VA system, and I have nothing but bragging words for them. But in this particular instance, this doctor, um, he said, oh, uh, you don't have breast cancer. Uh, Men don't get it. You, You don't have breast cancer. And I said, really? And uh, like I said, it was about uh, maybe three weeks or something like that after that, that he finally came to the conclusion that, yes, I had breast cancer. And uh, his bedside uh, manner, to say the least, was not um, the warm, fuzzy type. So, um, you know, uh, and also I I might add that he's no longer my my doctor. (laughs) Sometimes that's good. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, and I can, I mean, I can appreciate that coming from just having been diagnosed at the age of 31. um, You know, my doctor had said to me the same thing, that it wasn't, um, you know, that it wasn't cancer, 
but I can't, you know, I know how hard that was for me, but I can't imagine the struggle of that as a man, um, particularly when you feel it in your gut, that you know that it's something and you really have pinpointed it to being breast cancer. Um, but to have a doctor say, you know, just flat out, it's not breast cancer is a really right. hard pill to swallow when they haven't even done anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and again, that kind of goes to the reason why he's no longer my, my physician. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a little, um, alarming. I, I think my first thoughts were, we'll get it out. Yeah. And, and that's kind of common with, with how I, I believe from what I've the, the ladies that I've talked with, that's pretty much, you know, the way they feel, you know, get it out. Yes. You know, and you know, you just want to get it removed as soon as possible because we all know that, um, you know, they have a tendency to grow. Right. Um, so, uh, that was the, the first thing. And I said, well, let's schedule a surgery, you know? And, uh, and he even procrastinated on that. He, he procrastinated for six weeks. Oh my God. Uh, telling me that, yes, he did. Uh, telling me that, well, he's going to, he would have to be able to do the surgery, but he's trying to get things lined up here at the local VA. And finally I went in and uh, I, I demanded that he uh, give me a consult to another, uh, an oncologist uh, at another facility. And so now I uh, go to the Washington DC VA. Okay. And like I said, I get, Excellent care. But, you know, uh, I think a lot of that, maybe this isn't the way it should be, but I think, you know, you get a, you get what you give in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I, I get it. There's a lot of veterans that come in there and, uh, you know, they're just bitter and they're mad at the world. And I get that. And I understand that. Um, but uh, for, for the large part, um, the staff are there really diligently trying to help trying to make lives better and save lives and things. And they're just human beings. And a lot of times the veterans don't, don't speak the kindest, uh, you know, of words to these, these staffers and things. And it, it's a sad predicament. And unfortunately it can't, I mean, we're human, we're all human. So unfortunately it can't help but be reflected in the quality of healthcare that those individuals receive. Right. And uh, I mean, I've just kind of always uh, I don't want to say been a been a a good patient, but I've always been a respectful person. And I I just feel as though that that's imperative in life, you know. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So what did they um, excuse me? Sorry. What did they recommend in terms of a surgery? Was it a lumpectomy? Was it a mastectomy? Was it? No, I had a full mastectomy. And when you say full, did you do? Both? On my left side. On the left side. No, just okay. on the left. Yeah, okay. because the doctor assured me, they said, you know, uh, it's very, very, very rare that um, a man would have both or a reason to have both uh, breasts removed. Okay. Now, if you had a history, if you had a BRCA gene or something like that, that would be a different story. Um, so I had that, and then I was immediately put on uh, tamoxifen. And, um, and that was all well and good. But I want to back up for just a second. After before the surgery, they discovered that I needed to have open heart surgery. So I tell a lot of people that uh, breast cancer saved my life because literally it did. Had I not uh, found a lump, not had the surgery, they would have never discovered that I would that I was in dire need of open heart, and uh, and I would have just died uh, from uh, my heart. Uh, and my thoracic surgeon that did the open heart, he said, you know, he said, it's a blessing that, um, that they discovered this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have many, many levels of, uh, gratefulness and I know that that's kind of an oxymoron, uh, or a a kind of a ironic, weird thought, uh, to associate with breast cancer. Um, but I, I can't help it. It's, it's the, uh, it's the life I've been given. Yeah. Well, and so did they find that you needed to have the open heart surgery through the scans or like, how did that happen? Um, well, they were doing some preliminary tests to get me ready for the mastectomy. And in, in that they discovered that, um, uh, I guess through uh, blood draws and things of this sort, 
uh, and x-rays. And then they finally uh, said, well, you know what, we want to schedule a, um, uh, shoot, um, uh, uh, like a stress test. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they did that things, they said, no, you, you need to have open heart surgery. Wow. And at first they were going to put stents in and they started to do that. And they said, no, you need to have the open heart surgery. We can't do the stents. Wow. So you had the so, open heart surgery first and then the mastectomy? No, no, I could not way. have oh, that. Okay. And, and, and yeah, I had to, because, um, I, I would have had to wait two years after the open heart to have. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So by having the mastectomy first, um, I was able to, in three months time, be able to turn around and have the uh, open heart wow. and it presented some problems. It really presented some problems. The, the first big problem, the first biggest hurdle uh, was actually before the surgery. Uh, the tamoxifen drove my uh, triglyceride levels to what um, the thoracic surgeon uh, described as industrial strength. Huh. In fact, um, they went so high uh, that there is no, has never been a record of, of any uh, body having a triglyceride levels at 8,100. Wow. And mine were 8,100. And, of course, they should be, uh, you know, two and 300. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so why, and they attributed that. Why did they the even tamoxifen. put you on tamoxifen? Like that's, well, for me, it's confusing. That was, right. And, and I, that was just, uh, I guess, the standard uh, routine, oh. um, you know, medicine that they treat uh, breast cancer patients. Um, and, unfortunately, there's no... Uh, deviation, or there wasn't at that time, and really there still isn't, between how you treat a male breast cancer patient and how you treat a female breast cancer patient. Right. And, I mean, that's so, a huge problem. Um, yes. Yeah. It I mean, is, I, because our body chemistries are, even though they're similar, they're, they definitely are different. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So and that's true. That holds true for even twins. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, because of, of what we are in, environmentally exposed to, what we consume, um, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of attributes that go into the chemical makeup of our bodies. Right. And, uh, you know, oftentimes those things are kind of overlooked or dismissed and, you know, we don't think of them. And, and you know, we commonly look for genetic uh, connections, the DNA strands and things like that. But that's, as in my case, is not even relevant. Right. Well, and it's, you know, I get that there is this standard of care and, you know, they have medications that are provided for the majority of the population that, you know, the tamoxifen may work for most of the people. But, you know, again, exactly what you said, everybody's body is different. The way my body responded to tamoxifen is very different from the next person and the next person. Um, Right. You know, so, but I, I, was a little shocked when you said that they had put you on tamoxifen because I'm thinking I have never come across a man that has been prescribed tamoxifen. Um, well, if you talk with the, uh, breast, the male breast cancer coalition, um, there are a number of guys that hmm. have uh, gone through that. Uh, in fact, I was just, uh, I just was reading about another individual, a friend of mine out in uh, La Jolla, California, and uh, he was put on tamoxifen, and I said, "Well, watch your, you know, your triglycerides, because for me that was uh, a problem, you know." Yeah. So, um, I mean, <sighs> hey, th- th- this is all um, an experiment, and That's I know we it. don't like to think of ourselves <laughs> like that, but but it's the oh, reality it of mm-hmm. it. I agree. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not pleasant to think of ourselves as lab rats, but unfortunately. Um, you know, everybody's body chemistry is so different that that's exactly what it becomes. It becomes a, you know, uh, an experiment on us because we don't, the doctors have no clue how our bodies are going to respond mm-hmm. to the different medications. And right. we all, every one of us responds differently. You know, what makes me sick may not phase anybody else. My hair fell out in the eighth week of chemo. Right. The eighth week, a lot of people, it falls out pretty early. Yeah, after like two. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I you so, know, I think you're you're 100% right. I mean, it is genuinely an experiment. But I also think like 
you know, it's hard to think about that for ourselves, right? Like we don't want to be the guinea pigs. However, right. if they are, if there were not people that came before us, they wouldn't know what to do with us now, right? Oh and, my, yes. You know, so so we have to have that, and not that I prefer to Absolutely. think about us that way, but you know, I um, I mean, I was diagnosed in two thousand seven, um, March fifteenth, and I know that's a, spe- a particular date for you as well. But um, in two thousand seven, you know, when I really thought about that, I thought hard in terms of, you know, being part of clinical trials, so that you know somebody down the line and that would be now, would hopefully benefit from my willingness to participate in those, um, you know, experimental kind of treatment that was happening. So, right, right. Yeah. Now, Melissa, were you de novo? Were you, uh, were you stage four? I was not. When you were diagnosed? Mm-mm. You were no. not. No, I was stage two. Are you, are you now? No, I'm not. Good for you. I'm so happy to hear that. That's Thank wonderful. You. Yeah. Um, but of course, yeah. we do know that recurrence occurs in about 30% of, of those. So yes. I'm sure you're keeping a watchful eye. 100%. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a love hate thing, but it's good to keep an eye. On. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I, I did an interview with, um, a lady and I just adore her, um, you know, she kind of carries the same attitude that you do. She is so positive, but she had indicated that, you know, she didn't know that 30% of early stage breast cancer goes on to stage four, um, or progresses to that. And so she, she wasn't doing the follow-ups and she, um, she didn't know until she had, you know, fallen on the floor from, um, you know, the, the cancer kind of being, I guess, so overwhelming in her spine that she broke mm-hmm. her back. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so yeah, it was as much as, you know, it's like, Oh, another appointment, you know, like not that All I'm right. going to complain about it, but just, you know, every single year it's the same appointments and I'm like, okay, okay. But it's so important. Um, so yeah, yeah you have to be diligent about Absolutely. that, you know, you really, really do. And, and I think it's important to convey that to, um, our friends and family mm-hmm. members um, and those that we, you know, everybody that we meet, that, that that's a real possibility yeah. um, because 30, 30%, that's a that's significant a, yeah. number. It's not anything to sneeze at, you know? Right. So, well, and I agree. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, like I, for me, it was really hard uh, just because I was the only person that I knew that was that age that had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I have a family history of it, but I didn't have a relationship with that side of my family. Mm-hmm. So I really mm-hmm. was the only person. Um, and I re- I just remember there being somebody that had mentioned something like, oh, but you're, you're only stage two. And I'm like, yes, I understand. But then I found an article and it was about a woman um, who had the exact same, you know, staging and all of that stuff that I had. And she had progressed to stage four and she passed on. And so I immediately sent that out to my circle and I just said, you know, I don't want to scare you, but I also don't want to be walking around with rose colored glasses on. I know that this is a possibility. Um, Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's so important and, you know, I, I do get discouraged because I know that that conversation doesn't happen from the doctor's yeah. ends, at least not well, in my experience. You're exactly right. It doesn't. And, and Melissa, I, I got to tell you, I think so much of, of really what the, we're trying to convey and, and really what we're, we're kind of beating around the bush a little bit about, but it really all kind of boils down to coping mechanisms and learning um, because of uh, a, a better understanding. It helps, at least it did for me, it helps me to cope with the reality of what I, what I'm diagnosed with. Yes. And, uh, yeah. you know, so it makes, look, you can be, you can be uh, complacent or you can be resistant or you can be proactive and, uh, you, you can, you can go and say, Oh my, I've got cancer. I'm going to die and go crawl in a corner and, you know, roll the dice or, uh, you can just simply do nothing. And, um, that's again, it's sort of like rolling the dice. Right. Um, but, but I, from the very beginning said much like what you uh, were talking about. And, and that is, is that you felt this need to go out and try to, you know, to, to glean more information and 
to talk to people and, and to share it with your friends mm-hmm. because it's so valuable. You know, if you could, if you can save a life or make a difference in someone's life, we want to do that. You know, we're the only species in the world, the only species in the world that has the ability to share. Yeah. And we share our, we share our, not only do we share our love, but we share our information, we share our education, we share our experiences and our memories. We share all of that. And that's one of the greatest gifts. And if you're spiritual like I am, I believe that's one of the greatest gifts you get from God. Right. Well, and it's funny that you say that. Um, I hadn't thought about this for such a long time. But um, I remember being in high school and saying, it was in this really weird class. It was like an experimental class, speaking of experiments, but um, it was an experimental class. And I just remember saying that I wanted to work. um, And at that time, I didn't really have the appropriate language, I suppose, but I said, I want to work with AIDS or cancer patients. And I just remember everybody looking at me like I had foreheads, you know, why would I ever want to expose myself to that? And I had always said, um, I want to I, I somehow in life, I want to save a life, make a difference and touch a heart. And that's all that I ever wanted to do. And I never thought that I would do it through this. Um, and how rewarding that is. What's that? How rewarding that is. Yes. Yes. Um, so it's just really weird that you said those exact words. You said, you know, save a life and make a difference. And um, yeah, I mean, that was that was huge for me. Um, and I still, I mean, you know, 13 years later, I'm still striving to do those things. Yeah. Because it, and I think it takes a certain type of individual. I I don't know if it's that a personality or I'm not going to analyze what, you know, type of person it is, but I think it has to deal, has to deal with a certain type of individual that, is willing to stand up and talk about it, talk about their disease in hopes um, that it impacts somebody in a, in a positive manner. Yes. Um, you know, and I, and I, for me, I mean, it was, it, it was uh, in, immediate. I, mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell everybody. And for me originally, <laughs> and I laugh about this now, because originally I went around telling everybody, Hey, did you know men have breasts and men get <laughs> breast cancer? And I felt like a stupid recording looking back on it. But now I had uh, in that, in, in what I call this cancer adventure, this journey that I'm on, um, I have, uh, I met a lady uh, in Philadelphia at a conference there. And I, I remember interviewing her and we just connected so immediately on so many different levels. And I said, um, I said, I want to ask you a question. Did you know that men get breast cancer? Yes, she said. I said, well, have you ever met anybody? She said, no, you're the first person I've ever met, first male, you know. And I said, well, so now you know my history a little bit, and you've talked to me about breast cancer and males' breast cancer. And I said, what do you plan on doing about it? She said, you know, Kirby, that's a really good question. And she said, it is just at this moment that I realized that I need to go home and tell my two sons that they need to be tested. Mm-hmm. Because you see, it's not, it's not the mothers and the aunts and the grandmothers yeah. and the sisters mm-hmm. worrying solely about their daughters or their grandchildren, their granddaughters. But you need to be concerned about your children, both sexes, because it is not biased. There are no gender boundaries when it comes to breast cancer. Right. Well, and that was when that epiphany occurred for me. And the, the irony of it was she went back and the one son tested BRCA a positive, BRCA1, and the, and the other son um, was negative. So, you know, she, potentially she could have saved uh, his life. Unfortunately, uh, about four months after that, she passed away. But it was a big takeaway for me. It was a huge, it turned my life around. And now I no longer go around saying, hey, did you know men have breasts and we get breast cancer? Because it's not, that's not my focus on my mission. That's not what I'm focused on. My focus is now educating people that people get breast cancer. That it is, 
you know, and that's the huge story right there. And you don't have to be, uh, you know, 58 years old. You don't have to be uh, over menopause. You don't have no. to have uh, be ready for Social Security to get breast cancer. Right. You know, you yeah. can be 31 yeah. years old. You can be 18. You can be 13 years old. You can be 13. Yes. I mean, I've I. So, yeah, I know that the youngest yeah. person in Pittsburgh that had a diagnosis of breast cancer was 13. Yeah. So, you know, so that's been my takeaway and that's what the spin and that's really the mission that I have now is to educate people and say, I, it's great that you're concerned about your daughters, but listen up DNA. They don't DNA doesn't care. DNA doesn't care. Genes do not care. Right. They will transfer to both species Absolutely. Well, and I, you know, I think it starts with the doctors, right? Like the doctors yes. don't know. My doctor, when I told my doctor that my paternal side of my family had a history of cancer, including breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, mm -hmm. like all of these things, he, you know, he just looked at me and shrugged uh, just, it off. Yeah. And he was like, you don't, mm -hmm. you know, your grandmother who had ovarian cancer is too distant. Like you don't get breast mm -hmm. cancer from your dad. And then that's not true. Exactly. Not <laughs> exactly. Well, that, and that's what came yeah. up was, you know, we found out that I had the BRCA2 mutation and it came from the paternal side of my family. Right. And he was, I, I remember him calling me on the phone and saying, I am so sorry. And I, you know, I was nice about it, but I really thought to myself, like, you should be, <laughs> you yeah. should really be sorry um, because you're spreading misinformation. So, you know, it's, um, you know, my hope is, is that there oh, are... the doctor called you up, the doctor called you up. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I didn't, I didn't understand that. Oh yeah. My doctor, oh, yeah, the doctor called me after and that's huge. yeah, yeah. Um, he was wow. floored. He was floored. One that I had a... Um, diagnosis of breast cancer. And then the second part of that was that he was just floored to learn that it came from the paternal side of my family. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, that talking about the doctors, Melissa, and that's the thing that I think it, it's almost, uh, it's almost as, uh, as important as getting that diagnosis. The doctors need to uh, take it upon it themselves. It becomes really incumbent upon the medical staff to provide the patients with some kind of direction in getting help to help cope with the mental oh aspects. Gosh, yes. Because the mental aspects, and I really believe this, I think that they are as important, if not more so, than the diagnosis. Yes. Because they can be crippling, they can be death threatening. Mm hmm. 100%. The very first thought that I had when I got the phone call, so I got the phone call at work from a doctor that I didn't know, um, but I got the phone call at work and I never really heard the person say, you know, you have breast cancer. Um, but there were like four women in my office that just, you know, kind of surrounded me. One took the phone, the other one was comforting me. And when I finally picked my head up and kind of processed through everything, the first words weren't, I'm afraid I'm going to die. The first words out of my mouth were, who's going to love me now? You know, like that's, well, that's where I was. And mm -hmm. that is, so I get the whole, like the mental piece of it. And everybody responds differently in sure. that regard. You know, like a we lot of people. We all process things, everything different. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. You know. But just the, you know, I think that part is a huge piece that is missing. Yes. Yeah. That's the, I, I think it's called psychosocial. Yes. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, it really is. It's, it to me is, like I said, it's as significant as the diagnosis. Yes. And because of that, I think the doctors really, or the medical staff really need to give you the patient some kind of direction. They really need to be able to provide you say, hey, look, here are some groups and I want you to call them. That's part of your homework. You know, you may not feel like calling them, but you need to call them. You need to connect with these people because they've been down this road. They understand. And you might think you're, you're tough and you're able to handle this all on your own, 
But trust me, the insight that you are going to gain from just connecting with these people and hearing their stories and what you're going to learn is so valuable. Right. I I just, to me, I think it's a major part of the puzzle. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I think there are, I think we've come a long way with certain things related to cancer, and I still think that we have a long way to go with many other oh, aspects. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so I did want to talk about, um, you know, so we did talk a little bit about, you know, the the initial diagnosis, um, you know, and your treatment for that. But then in um, 2016, you were um, diagnosed, diagnosed with recurrence. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Well, of course, I'm not going to be closed closed mouth <laughs> about it now. No. Um, again, this is really <coughs> excuse me. These weird things that happen in my life are, you know, I mean, you couldn't write them in a script, a Hollywood script. You really couldn't. I, in 2016, I had, uh, in January, I was fighting pneumonia. Um, and uh, finally, at the end of the month, uh, they did x-rays, and, and my lungs were clear. And uh, no sign of anything. I went home, and I had uh, scheduled in the middle of March uh, some very routine uh, cosmetic surgery. And I am not a vain person, but I'm a wimp when it comes to having things cut off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so because of that, I had asked to be put, put asleep. Uh, uh, and, um, <clears throat> again, in the routine test, excuse me, <clears throat> I apologize for that. No worries. Let me take a drink here and maybe that'll help. <clears throat> so again, in the routine uh, preliminary um, surgical workups, they discovered abnormalities. <clears throat> oh, I'm, I really apologize for the coughing. I'm sorry. It is not COVID. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I hope it's not. <laughs> I don't want it to be. Um, no. Um, but anyway, um, so they discovered these abnormalities, and right away, Right away, I, said, I, I turned to my wife and I said, my cancer's back. She said, how do you know that? I said, I just do. <laughs> now, what surprised me the most was not the fact that it had returned. I'm really having a coughing problem here. I, am, I apologize terribly. Let me, um, let me take just a minute here. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So what um, it, it, what really surprised me, shocked me, was the fact that six weeks prior to that, my lungs were crystal clear. And now, on the middle of March, six weeks later, um, they lit up <laughs> with all kinds of cancer cells. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And... You look like a Christmas tree. And so that was the thing that amazed me was how quickly um, I went from my lungs being clear uh, to the presence of, of the cancer yeah. uh, here in his face. And so that, that, it wasn't the fact that it recurred because I told my wife, I said, you know, they claim that you're cancer free. They claim that they got everything, but it only takes one little cell That's it. to get through, you know, and <clears throat> the reality is, and if we want to talk biologically, we all of our bodies have millions of little cysts in them. It doesn't matter the healthiest person in the world. We all have these little cysts. But the difference is, in some people, they turn on and they become cancerous, and in others, they're dormant their entire life. And there's no reason they can't decide, they can't determine what if they could, if they could figure that out, they could stop cancer. But they, I mean, that's just, it, it's a, uh, you know, for one thing, you've got millions of these, if not billions of these cysts in your bodies and they're microscopic. They're so small. You can't even detect them until 
you know, you have a, a bot, uh, once you're dead and they do an autopsy, <laughs> autopsy, then they can look and find all of these. Right. But in the meantime, we have all of these cysts that for some reason turn on. And if your body is programmed or receptive to turning on these cysts in an isolated area like the breast, doesn't it kind of lend itself a little credence that there's a possibility that that's going to happen someplace else? Absolutely. Now, yeah. Now, for the fact that it was that it was breast cancer that metastasized, that surprised me because I was expecting it to be prostate or liver or you know lung cancer or something else. Uh, but. It wasn't. It was, it was the breast cancer. And, of course, the breast cancer cells have to metastasize. They have to travel out of the breast region to get to these other areas in your body. Right. But, uh, you know, so it's, I mean, obviously, it's a whole science in and of itself and, and beyond that. Uh, it's incomprehensible science, you know. Um, but it is, nonetheless, that is what happens and uh, I have a little visual presentation that I show people a lot of times on how a, a breast cancer cell mutates. And that's the biggest problem with breast cancer is because uh, a cell's purpose is to divide. And <clears throat> with breast cancer cells, they don't divide and make like breast cancer cells. They divide and they don't look any, the new cells don't look anything like the mother cell. And so how do you fight something that is constantly mutating? I mean, that, that's touching on a little science, but not probably more so than what I need to at this point. But, you <laughs> no know, worries. these are the kind of problems that, um, that you know, our, our scientists, our researchers are uh, faced with. You know, this, this incredible perplexity of uh, what happens <clears throat> with breast cancer cells that doesn't occur with any other type of cancer. Right. Well, and you know, there's, I mean, there's just so many other complexities as well, right? In terms of, um, you know, I always think about breast cancer and, you know, whether or not it can be, you know, if there can be a cure that's found or whatever. And, you know, there are just so many different strands of breast cancer. Sure. sure. That, you know, sure, there may be a cure for one, you know, but how many really are there? You know, and, um, you know, again, <laughs> and then you with, get the submutations, right. You know, that occur after somebody has been diagnosed and suddenly if you're, uh, what is it? A triple negative, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly you're, you're no longer a triple negative, but you're, you've got this other submutation that's occurred. I mean, it, it's just, that's why I go back to that statement that it's going to be an accident if we ever find a cure. Right. It's going to be something that somebody stumbled upon. But in the meantime, we can be hopeful to be able to stop progression. And because that's really the gold standard for anybody that's metastatic. Right. Yeah. And really, at any, anybody at any age, if we can stop progression or at any stage, right? If we can stop progression, you know, if you've got stage one and we can find a way to stop progression so that it never becomes two, three, or four. You know, that's wonderful. That's the same as curing it all but the, you know, the fine print. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Yeah. No, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's, um, you know, we're all hopeful and, and you know, wanting a cure. But, um, you know, at this point with what we have, it's really just stopping the progression of it. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Go ahead. You know, and, and that's the other thing that occurred uh, <clears throat> that I laugh about because the, it's just so ironic to me. It's just so strange the way our body accepts these chemicals that, you know, the, the oncologists and things are, are giving us. And, uh, you know, so I, I was stage four in March and I'm, uh, I started uh, uh, after some tests and things uh, that, they wanted to determine, you know, exactly. They did a biopsy and things and wanted to determine exactly what type of uh, cancer it was and all of this. They did an, another uh, needle biopsy into my lung. And, and, um, and <clears throat> once that was determined, 
uh, then the, the oncologist had a basis as to how they were going to treat me. Um, and uh, so uh, I went through my chemo uh, for 16 weeks. And in the uh, process of this, the doctor said, well, how do you feel about clinical trials? And I said, it, it, I will do anything you tell me to do. It doesn't matter to me because, um, you know, I've already got stage four cancer. I'm willing to help any way I can. It, it may make a difference for me, but it might be huge for somebody yeah. else. You know? And that's what I was really kind of looking at. I have, a, I have a grandson and a granddaughter, and, and so that's what I'm focused on, something that can make a difference in their generation. Yeah. And, um, and so um, – or for anybody, you know, any small stride that can be uh, gainfully, you know, developed. And if I can play a, a role in that, that's wonderful. Absolutely. And uh, so, um, so <clears throat> the irony fell uh, in November, November the 4th of that year. Um, so I had already been through my chemo and actually was on a Faslodex and uh, Zometa and uh, Ibrant's uh, routine and uh, had was doing really quite well, uh, with that. And, uh, the doctor, I had my regular scans and things and it was still prevalent and it really had not had any change, but it had not progressed. And so on November the 4th, I had scans scheduled and she called, she gets my results really quickly. She said that was the reason that she became an oncologist because she had had a problem and that she just felt like the results took too long to get an answer. So she made it her mission to become an oncologist and because she wanted to get people the results as quickly as possible. Good so probably with her. Yes, absolutely. So she calls me up and she says, Hey Kirby, I've got good news and I've got great news. Now <clears throat> she's an Indian and I love this lady. I absolutely love her, but I thought, you know, there's a little something lost in the translation here. Maybe um, it's good news and bad news. And she said, no, this is good news and great news. I said, well, give me the good news. She said, well, the good news is, is that you got into the clinical trials. I said, well, that's great news. She said, no, the great news is, is that you're not going to be able to be in the clinical trials. And I said, what? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you, you don't have any evidence of disease. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, how does that happen? You know, I, I, I just... I can't comprehend how that happens. And it happens just as quickly. It left or went silent. It didn't leave, but it right. disappeared. You know, everything turned off. Those cysts all turned off. Somebody hit that switch, the right switch. You know, yeah. the chemical mm -hmm. balance was correct. And it turned those off. And they, they went away. And has that been the case <laughs> over the course of the past four years? No, okay. no, it was, I, I was no evidence of disease or NED, uh, for 34 months. Okay. Wow. Um, so, um, I felt very good about that. Um, but I have had, uh, uh, since, uh, let's see, August of last year, I guess it was, um, the, uh, <clears throat> I had a little spot reappear and it has had, uh, some progression. Okay. Uh, but it's not been monumental, but it's still, nonetheless, it's been there on my, my right lung. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's this whole, um, and I call it an adventure. I do. And the reason I do is because I, my mantra when I was growing up as a kid, I had a, a skiing poster. I, I loved to downhill ski. And I had a picture on my wall, a poster on my wall of this guy downhill skiing in powder, clear up to his waist. And it said, life is a daring adventure or nothing at all. Oh, yeah. And that's been my mantra to live my life. And when I got breast cancer and when it became metastatic, I, it really hasn't changed. It's still the way I live my life. It's a daring adventure. And, you know, um, I guess I'll live that until it's nothing at all, until I'm not here, you know. I uh, but that. that's, well, it's the way, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't have a choice, you know. I don't have a choice. I just say, you know, I don't want to quit living because I got a bad diagnosis, you know, Yeah. because my diagnosis sucks, but I don't want to quit living. I'm yeah. still here. It's just like I said, I died on March the 15th, 
just pretend that that happened. And every day since has been gravy. It's been extra. And that's the way I choose to live. Well, I love it. Um, I love your story. You know, I love your, I love your passion. Um, I love your attitude. There are just so many things um, about you uh, that obviously make you Kirby. (laughs) Um, And I wish that I could meet you in person um, to give you a hug and, um, you know, thank you for um, sharing your story with me and my listeners. Um, I, I think that the way that we, uh, I think exactly what you just said is the perfect way to end um, this episode. Um, You've provided a lot of inspiration to many people, I'm sure. And um, somebody's going to walk away with something from this um, episode that they didn't have before. So thank you so much. Melissa, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate your kind words. And someday, you know, hopefully we will meet. Yes. And when when we do, um, I'm a big guy. I'm <laughs> six foot three, uh, almost not quite 300 pounds, but I'm a big guy, um, about 280. And uh, and so I give big Kirby hugs. And that's what the, everybody knows me. They say, oh, I, I can't wait. I'm going to get a big Kirby hug. And uh, so hopefully COVID will pass someday soon and you and I can meet and you will get a big Kirby hug. But thank you so much again for having me. Your word means so much to me. And I I hope uh, and pray that somehow, some way um, it makes this podcast makes a difference for others. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit DesignByACC.com. Absolutely.